2: This is Al-Fadi and with me here virtually in our studios, Dr. Jay Smith, and we've been unpacking a number of doctrinal issues comparing the uh, doctrine or the theological worldview from an Islamic point of view and from a biblical or Christian worldview. Today, uh, we are going to unpack yet another important topic. This time, it's the topic of incarnation. And obviously, I don't want to jump ahead of myself or anything, but just one verse in the Bible is so powerful that I think, one way or another, it will tie into the discussion. That's, and the Word became flesh. And That's what we mean by the incarnation. The Word, who is God, appearing to us in the flesh. That's why Jesus is God incarnate. Of course, with me here, as I stated, is Dr. Jay Smith to unpack all of that. Dr. Jay, welcome back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And remember, we've said this over and over again in this in this whole series that we, when you look at the two different categories of God on this side versus God on this side, uh, when you look at Trinity on this side, on this side, when you look at humanity, sin, salvation, atonement, all of this, when you look at the two, you see we're talking about two different categories. They may they use the same names, but completely different categories. We saw this with atonement. And at the end of the segment on atonement, we said, well, who is this one who's going to do the atonement? Because atonement has to be done by he who was sinned against but is sinless. Has to be sinless himself. Sinned against and sinless. Otherwise, otherwise, there's no way that a, someone in the Quran agrees with this. In chapter 6, verse 164 and chapter 53, verse 38. Anybody who has burdened with sin cannot take on another sin. They're already sinful. How can a sinful person take on another person's sin? It has to be a sinless one who take does that. Now, for the Muslims, they don't they don't see this. They, in fact, every Muslim that I've talked to and those who are listening, you say to me all the time, "There's no way in the world that Allah would ever take on human form, would co- become as a flesh, that because this would pollute him, this would corrupt him." I remember Ahmad Didim in his debate. Uh, I'm not sure he was debating, but in the middle of the debate, he started screaming. How can you say Allah became a man, a worm, a worm, and he yelled it out, a worm? How could Allah become a worm? That's how corrupted we are. Now, so at least he got one thing right: we are corrupted, we are sinful. We all know that. Even uh, even the great clerics know that, and certainly in this case, Ahmadida knew that. But here's the brief comment: I can understand if that were the case that he would see Allah would be corrupted, and he was just really reflecting. The weakness of Allah. Allah is a very corruptible. That's why He doesn't dare enter time and space. Is that's what um, of the Ahadidah oh, is telling me? If Allah came to Earth, and He is your God, and He's the only God you got, and He gets corrupted, then I would suggest that's not a very powerful God. In fact, that's a God. If God can be corrupted that easily, then I was wondering, how can what kind of God do you worship? You need a bigger God than that, and certainly a lot more powerful God than that, and certainly a lot less corruptible God than that. My God can come to earth anytime he wants and not be corrupted whatsoever. And you see that incarnation is not just there in the garden of Eden. That is God walking and talking in the cool of the day. That is God. His name is God. And he is seen as God. And he is there able to take on human form. So from the very beginning, my God can take on human form. That's not the only time he was wrestling with Jacob. If he was wrestling with Jacob, he better have a pair of arms and a pair of legs in order to wrestle. He took the children of Israel through the desert. For 40 years, he was a a pillar of cloud during the day, and at nighttime, he was a pillar of fire. My God can take on any form he wants. Muslims, do you see what you're saying when you're saying God cannot take on any form, cannot enter time and space? You're limiting God. You're taking away his Akbar. He's no longer Allahu Akbar. Can stop saying that if you say he cannot become come to earth. But hold on, hold on a minute. I'm going to take you to another place where God came to earth. Exodus chapter 3. God was there as a burning bush. Now, you Muslims know that you have the same story. It's right there in chapter 20. Open up your Quran to chapter 20 and read verse 10 to 14. That's an amazing story because in that story, Moses, he sees the distance of burning a fire. He sees in the distance of fire, and he just wants to see what that fire is. He wants to see what it's all about. And he goes, comes towards the fire. And as he comes towards the fire, he wants to take some fire to go and start his own fire. As he approaches that bush that he sees that's burning and doesn't get consumed, a voice comes from within the bush in verse 10. In your Quran, not my Bible, although it's in my Bible, but I'm talking about your Quran now, in your Quran, and the voice says, oh, Moses, take off your shoes for you're on holy ground. Now, hold on, Muslims. Holy ground. If it's holy ground, does that mean God's there or not there? Can you have holy ground on earth without God? Can be a holy ground any place? Or does it not demand if it's holy, it must be that Allah is there. Am I correct? If it's holy ground, you know Allah is there. Otherwise, it's not holy. Am I correct? Yes. Suggesting that in verse 10, Allah is in that bush, right? Yes. No, gotcha. you still don't like that? Well, then read verse 14. Continue on to verse 14, because the, 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 the voice from within the bush says to Moses, truly, I am Allah who is speaking to you. Here is that bush that's burning that takes on the name of Allah. Now, can anybody take on the name of Allah but Allah himself? Bingo. Can you see a problem here? You're starting to see the problem. Is Allah in that bush? obviously, if it's holy ground, he must be there. And if he claims to be Allah, it must be him. Nobody can claim to be Allah and not be God, proving that certainly in chapter 20, verse 10 to 14 of your Quran, Allah is in that bush. And where's that bush? It's on earth. And where's in front of Moses. So in 1400 BC, when this event is happening, Allah must have been in that bush, must have been on earth at that time. If he was in that bush at that time, as if you're going to have to admit, if you don't like that story, you don't want it, you, you're going to have to tear it out and throw it away. You're not going to do that to the Quran. Can you see a problem? There is a problem for your Muslims because in chapter 20, it's also repeated in chapter 27, you have Allah on earth, which means if he can do it in 1400 BC, he can do it 2000 years ago. Bingo. So the incarnation does exist in the Quran, whether you like it or not. God at one time did come to earth. And if he did, then that means he can do it anytime. But hold on. Why is it he had to come to earth? Why is it? Well, we know the reason why. is because in order for to eradicate sin. In, in, my, in the Bible, it's very clear that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 78, Jesus Christ, it says, who did not consider equality something to be grasped, took on himself the form of a servant, humbled himself, it says in my translation, to the point of dying on the cross. There it is right there. That is the reference point that I want to see, because it's in the Bible very clearly that God came to earth to fulfill what he had done to the very beginning. At the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when he's there with Adam and Eve, and he has condemned them for the sin they have done, he turns towards Eve, and he says, someone from your line, He, that means it's going to be a male. Well, who is that male? Remember in the last episode, I was going to say who it was. We need to go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. In Isaiah 7, I'm making it really easy for you folks. Seven is the perfect number, double that is 14. Isaiah says this For this shall be a sign. Wake up, folks. A virgin will conceive. Now, hold on a minute. In my there in my existence, virgins don't conceive. If virgins start conceiving, they're no longer virgins. By definition, am I correct? Scientifically, that is impossible. But in your Quran, you know there was one virgin. In chapter 19, verse 20 of the Quran, it's very clear there was one virgin, virgin, Virgin Mary. Mary was that virgin. She did conceive and bore a son. So what does Isaiah say? For a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. So when that woman who's in the line of Eve bears a son, she will be a virgin to know that this is something miraculous. This is not normal. This is out of the normal. This is a miracle happening. When that happens, folks, it is God with us. Oh, I love it. That's why I love my Bible, and that's why I love the whole scope of history. It all makes sense. What God promised there in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve from the line of Eve, had to have been through a man, he who would come to earth, and that man would be Emmanuel, God with us. Muslims, you know who that man is. His name is Issa. You know who that virgin was. Her name is Mary. It's in your Quran. See, these are beautiful little little, um, flags right through Scripture that help us to understand who is it that God promised right at the very beginning. He already did that because he's our daddy. Our daddy, who's relational, was going to come himself. He had to come himself. And he had to come through a Virgin Mary. promised there 800 years before it happened, there to the prophet Isaiah, so that we could know and recognize him when he did come. Folks, it happened 2,000 years ago, and his name is Jesus. Now, what we're going to do in the next episode, we're going to have to say, well, where do we get all this from? We get it from Revelation. But what kind of Revelation? We're going to find we have two completely different kinds of Revelation. One is relational, the other isn't. Guess which is which. Until the next episode, this is Jay here. Over to you, Fadi.
2: Thank you, and this is Al Fadi, over and out. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message.
1: You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International, that's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to cirainternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason.
2: Hello, everyone. This is Al-Fadi, and I want to welcome you back to a continuation of this fascinating video series on what we call the hermeneutical keys, talking about important doctrinal issues that clearly distinguishes between the Islamic point of view or worldview versus the Christian worldview, and those are very important topics that have to do really with our faith and salvation. Today is no exception. We'll be talking about revelation, and we will make a case in point that we're dealing with two different revelations. The revelation of Islam is totally different than the revelation of the Bible. And with me here, of course, as always, to unpack all of this, is our dear brother, Dr. J. Smith. Dr. J., welcome back, brother.
1: Thanks. Good to be back. Thanks to be talking about these different categories. These are really foundational categories to both of our faiths. And every Muslim and every Christian, you probably had discussion after discussion on this, and you will probably seem to be just talking past each other which is understandable because though you may use the same word as we these words have totally different meanings and here's revelation is another one of this revelation in islam is basically it's it's the quran this is your final revelation and this is your general revelation you might say according Our, to islam yeah according to islam i i would suggest that they're fascinating because for muslims they always say that there's no such there's no way that revelation can. Um, it's always sent down from God via the angel Gabriel to a prophet. Uh, Two hundred twenty four uh, thousand prophets, or one hundred forty four thousand prophets. Sorry, and every prophet had a revelation. Well, where are they? We can only come up with four of them that that are supposedly still existing today, and that would be the Taurat from Moses, the Zabur from David, the Injil from Issa, and the Quran from Muhammad. Those are the only four that Muslims ever come up with. And it's the Quran that is the final revelation, the greatest revelation. It is the eternal one, because that's in chapter 85, verse 21 to 22. It is the untouched one by human hands, chapter 10, verse 15, and chapter 18, verse 27. It's the one that's guarded by Allah himself. So not one word, not one letter, not one dot could be changed. That's in chapter 15, verse 9. So Muslims make this claim over and over again. They're saying that the Quran is inimitable, is indisputed, is, it's completely preserved. And, of course, the whole preservation argument has gone out the window with the 26 Qurans that we've come across, these get now, that Hattun was able to find back in 2013, 14, and 15. And then we held up for the whole world to see in 2016. So this whole thing of revelation is very difficult for Muslims to really argue or, de- or defend anymore. What's interesting is revelation really only is twofold in Islam. There are two kinds of revelation. What they know as general revelation, that is where God shows his greatness in his creation. And we
2: would agree with that, would we, Al Fadi? We also have general revelation. We understand okay. it's in, there in Romans true. 1, wouldn't we? Yeah. yeah. So Psalm 19, for instance, talks about that. So
1: general revelation, we understand. Look at God's creation. The sophisticatedness shows that there has to be a creator behind it. This is not done by happen, happenstance or willy-nilly. So we would agree there is general revelation. And then they talk about special revelation, which is rasuls or nubbies that are given information that are sent these revelations uh, via the angel Gabriel, uh, of course, to all the prophets. Then, of course, the final one that was given to Muhammad between six ten. And 632, that 22-year period, is the greatest of that special revelation. And we would agree as Christians, wouldn't we, al that we also believe that God also reveals himself to different prophets. They write down in their own, using their own skills, what God has inspired
2: them through the Holy Spirit. uh, Hebrews chapter 1 talks about that, talks about uh, speaking to us through prophets and speaking in a son. Uh, Psalm 19 talks about general revelation and specific uh, or special revelation. So the Bible is very clear about that.
1: And Romans 1 also brings that up, that same thing. But here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. That's as far as Islam goes. General and special. There's nothing beyond that. But see, Christianity goes much, much further. Because hold on a minute. What's the best way to reveal yourself? Now, I'm here in... United States on the East Coast, United States, and al Fadi you're in another complete you're hundreds of miles, maybe thousands of miles from me, and we're on zoom, are we not, and we're revealing. our this is not the best way to reveal ourselves, is it? It's one medium, but the best way for me to be with you is in the studio with you. am I correct?
2: Yeah, we're praying for that to happen soon, yeah,
1: and we were we We go and we're, in fact, most of our episodes, I'm right next to you. And I can throw water in your face and I can spit at you and hammer you if I wanted to. We're right next to each other. This is one of the rare times where we're not next to each other. We're actually in two different studios in two different locations. I'm at my home. But the best way, the best way to reveal myself, the best form of revelation is personal revelation, where I come personally and I can interact with you and you can dispute with me. We can go back and forth. Am I not correct?
2: Absolutely, brother. Absolutely,
1: and see that's what God did through Jesus Christ. When God came two thousand years ago as a baby, spent thirty-three years on Earth, He came in person. That was God in person, and that's why He could. He gave us the Scripture, and that's why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John they wrote down what God did and they wrote down what God said. They were I, two of them were eyewitnesses. The other two were, got it from the eyewitnesses. So there is His Hadith, and there is. His Siddha. The Siddha would be the biography of God and also the sayings of God. You can't have the biography and sayings unless God was actually on earth. He was there. So that's personal revelation. Islam has nothing like that. But see, that's what I would expect a daddy, somebody who wants relationship with me. The best way as a relational God is going to have with his human counterparts is to be there in person. That's what God did. And he didn't just do it then. He's done it, as we said, in the incarnation. He did it with the very beginning, walking, talking, the cool of the day. He did it with with uh, Jacob. He did it with Abraham. He did it with Moses. He certainly was there with the children of Israel going through the desert. And certainly 2,000 years ago, he was as, a, as Jesus Christ on earth for 33 years. Our God could do that because he is a personal God personal revelation is something Islam has no category for. But hold on a minute, hold on. So that's three different forms of revelation, general, specific, personal. But that happened 2,000 years ago. I'm not there. Al-Fati, you're not there. How do we know that they got it right? How do we know what Christ said? How do we know what Christ did? Well, here's the beautiful thing. See, this is what kind of relational God we have. See, if he's a real daddy and he's real relation with us, wouldn't he leave something behind or someone behind to reveal himself to us even today? Didn't he say that to the disciples in John 14 and John 16? He turns to the disciple, says, I'm leaving you now, but I'm going to leave someone. He, he's going to teach you all things. You're not going to be able to see him. You're going to know him. He's going to be inside you, proving that can't be Muhammad, and he's going to reveal my scriptures to you and protect you. Who is that? Well, he says it right there. That's the Holy Spirit. That is ongoing revelation, and that Holy Spirit is right here right now. 2,000 years, years later, he's still here. In fact, he's right here with us. Is he not, old Fadi? Is he not
2: continuing to honest.
1: reveal himself to us?
2: Absolutely, and I will be with you until the end of the age, a promise until the from end the, of the age.
1: Yeah. So our God is not only a relational God at the very beginning, our God is not only a relational God that gives His information to different, to different prophets and writers and scholars and all the way through for over 1,400 years, our God is not only a personal revelation that came 2,000 years ago, our God is has ongoing revelation that is just as personal now as it was at the very beginning. That's what I would expect from a God who is a daddy. That's who I would expect from a God who is not a master to a slave, but is a father to a child. He continues to relate to us. He continues to reveal to us. He continues to have a relationship with us. Even today, 2,000 years ago, until At the end of time. oh, what kind of God have we have. Can you see? Revelation, we have two completely different revelations. On this side, this is as far as you get, Muslims. You don't get any better than this. Oh, we've got this as well. But who do you think is the better word of God? Yes, this is our word of God. But who is the Logos? The word of God. And see, Muslims, you always tell me that this word of God is eternal. You always say that. This God is, I'm sorry, this Quran is eternal. Chapter 85, verse 21 and 22 say that. And then you also say that this was sent down to one man over a period of 22 years, from 610 to 632, his name was Muhammad. And then you tell me that it was completed at that time, by the time Muhammad died in 632, but completely written down in its final form under the time of Uthman in 652. And then you tell me that it is unchanged. So eternal, sent down, complete, and unchanged. Well, I can't argue about eternal because we're not in eternity. As far as sent down, well, I wasn't there in the 7th century, but complete and unchanged. I can shut that down very quickly. In fact, al Fadi and I have been doing that for episode after episode after episode. Look at right here. That shows that it's not complete, and it shows that it's been changed enormously in the last 1,400 years. So we can shut that down and pretty well say that this book does not fulfill any of those four. But hold on a minute. Neither does this book. But this is not only our only word of God. Jesus is the word of God, the Logos, Amen. who entered time and space. Now, hold on a minute. Let's apply those four things to Jesus. Was he not eternal? Is he not eternal? Yes, he is glory. He is God. So Jesus is eternal. He was sent down for 33 years between 610 and 632. He has never changed, unlike the Quran has changed. And he has complete. He is the only complete revelation. So the best revelation, the eternal revelation, the personal revelation is Jesus himself who brings up. And how do we know? Because of this revelation. So we have coming and going a better revelation who is ongoing through the Holy Spirit right now and forevermore. Now, the next thing we're going to do, we're going to do a number of things. We're not just going to do one category. We're probably going to fit a number of categories together, predestination and theocracy and spirit world. But that's for the next time, folks. Can you see how in every case, everything we're talking about on this side is relational. Everything they're talking about on this side has nothing to do with relationship because they don't have a relational God. We do. Come on home.
2: Amen. And, and there are two passages that come to mind to emphasize relationship through Revelation, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. It says, God, after he spoke, notice, he spoke long ago to the fathers. God himself was speaking to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, meaning 2,000 years ago, He spoke to us in His Son. To us, to us, not to the prophets, speaking to us. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, it says, In the beginning the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. What happened to that Word? And the Word became flesh. And then later in verse 18, it says, No one hath seen God except the Son of God who came to do what? Who is in the bosom of Father, who came to reveal Him to us, to exegete Him to us, to interpret Him to us. Because God wants us to have a relationship with Him. That's the depth and the length he went through in order for him to retain that relationship with us. He says, for God so loved the world. He loves the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He didn't send the Son to the world to judge the world, but rather to save the world. This is the God we worship. This is the God, my God, and Dr. J's God, and the God of many followers of Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, brother Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. This is Al Fadi over and out. God bless.